Great. Thanks, Bill. And thank you all for being here. So good to see you. Thank you for joining us online. If you're tuning in, whether it's now or a little bit later, uh, we're going to be in Mark chapter one. But before we, we turn there, I wanted to just give you a, a little update. Uh, a few weeks ago, many of you would know, we had uh, Tim and Becca Owens in town with us. Uh, we spent the day Saturday uh, interviewing uh, Tim with the idea of really seeking the Lord about adding him to the pastoral staff here in the future. We had a great time together. Tim preached here uh, on Sunday, and we asked you all to, to pray uh, about that decision. And uh, we feel like the weekend went very well. After that was over, we gathered together as a team. We reviewed everything, reviewed our notes, reviewed his 100-question application that we put him through, and uh, went over everything and just really felt uh, a sense of unanimity without any reservation. We would love to just offer this man the job of coming back to Pasadena and being part of the staff. And so I wanted to report to you today that he actually got back to us and said, yes, he would be very excited to, to do that. So praise report. Thank you for praying. This is really... Uh, God's provision for us is just one of the ways that God provides for his church by providing leaders, pastors in particular. And so just, just a wonderful praise report that uh, this is in process. So just so you know, the sort of the plan is, um, I'm sorry, there's a little bit of a delay in here. We really felt like we wanted to send Tim and Becca to the pastor's college in Louisville first. So what that means is things are a little bit delayed before we're going to see them. It's actually going to be like June of 2022 before we'd see them here in Pasadena. We talked about this, wrestled through. We just really felt like this investing 10 months in him at the front end is going to pay dividends for years thereafter. So a little bit of a price to pay up front, but we know it'll be well worth the effort. So Let's uphold them in prayer. They'll be going to the pastor's college this fall, late August, and spend 10 months there in Louisville studying, getting trained, getting prepared, and then from there relocate here to Pasadena. Let's hold them up in prayer through that season, and uh, let's just trust the Lord and be patient uh, in the interim time and thank the Lord that God's provision is on the way, all right? Beautiful. Okay, Mark chapter 1 is our text for today. was praying that the Lord would calm the winds today, thinking, you know, my notes are like just going to go all over the place if it's too windy. But then I was reminded the word in the Bible for wind and spirit, did you know this, are exactly the same word? So if my notes blow away, we're just going to trust, okay, now we're being led by the spirit and I'll just wing it and we'll see what God does. That was the kind of church I grew up in. The preachers that would just wing it were the ones we admired the most. Had a little change of heart with that, but here we are. Okay, let's see a little more. All right, let's read our text. Mark chapter 1, let's read the first 13 verses together. In the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, behold... I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea 
and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached saying, after me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Now in those days, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. The spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness and he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals and the angels were ministering to him. This is week two of our study into the gospel according to Mark. The sort of theme underscoring the gospel according to Mark is knowing Jesus, knowing him more, knowing him as he is. This is sort of what we're after. I want to pose a couple questions to you. How could it be that a person who knows Jesus could have their heart grow dull? insensitive to the Lord, live in a sort of spiritual coma, unaffected by the grace of God? How could a husband and a wife who both know Jesus find themselves in a marriage filled with contention, hatred, and resentment? How could a prominent Christian leader announce one day that they've left the faith? Or maybe it becomes known after the fact that they had been living a double standard for years without anybody knowing it? How could a group of protesters turn into a violent mob, storm, break in, causing damage and loss of life, and then stand in the actual chambers of the White House and invoke the name of Jesus and say, thank Jesus for bringing us to this point? How could there be any real truth to the statement that was made a long time ago that Sunday morning is the most segregated hour in America. How could these kinds of things be true? How could we say we know Jesus and yet these things and the list could go on? How could these things take place? Sometimes there is a gap between knowing Jesus and our actual lives reflecting knowing Jesus. Problems are not always simple. The things I've listed could be very complex. There's lots of things that go from knowing Jesus that help fill out a godly way to live and to respond to situations that we face and troubles in our lives. But gaining and keeping a high view of Christ is the necessary starting point. This is what I hope to be after in this study. This is a look at who Jesus is. And the idea is for us to know him, know him better, know him more deeply, have a higher view of Jesus. Not to the end simply of just knowing things about Jesus, but to the end that our lives reflect that knowledge of Christ 
more and more. As a church, as a local church, our unity, our fellowship, our worship, our, our witness, all these things depend entirely on us knowing Christ and knowing him well. Knowing him more rightly with less and less misunderstanding about who he is, but with more clarity. Who is this son of God? Now, Mark gives us an account of the ministry of Jesus. It is a very active account. He just, he doesn't spend a lot of time telling us about it. He just says, this is what Jesus did. He did this, then he did this. He went here. He performed this miracle. It's a very active uh, drama of the life and ministry of Jesus. But he begins with what could be called a prologue. The verses that we read are sort of the, the information, and, and understand it's sort of the privileged information to the reader. You and I get to read these verses before Mark gets started with the actual drama of Jesus' life. Before we get started with that, here's some information that Mark wants us to know and understand, to position us well, that once we start looking at the life of Jesus, we've got some background, we've got some knowledge, we've got some privileged insight about what we're going to be reading and what we're going to be studying together. Mark's aim from the outset, that you and I, the readers of this book, have a very high view of Jesus at the very outset. That we think so highly of Jesus from, the, from verse 14 and on, and we start reading about these accounts of Jesus, we're already poised in our hearts and in our souls to realize this Jesus is preeminent, exalted. This is the Son of God. He's the one we're called to look to. He's the answer to our problems. He's God's solution to the problems of the world. We should be positioned in our hearts to, to start in this study with that kind of view of Jesus. So I just want to focus on the prologue this afternoon. I want to take a little different tack with it. I just want to make two points from this prologue, drawing from two key words that Mark uses in this prologue, the wilderness and the spirit. Two words, two major themes, particularly spent by Mark in this prologue, wanting to communicate something to us, the wilderness and the spirit. So first point, look to the wilderness. Okay, the wilderness, you know this term. If you've read the Bible at all, the wilderness is the desert. The wilderness uh, is just packed full of meaning in the Bible. It's the place where there's essentially no earthly supply. Everything is lacking in the wilderness. And yet the wilderness becomes a key location for God to move. You remember Israel's journey, 40 years through the wilderness they spent describing their spiritual journey. And maybe you and I would talk about our spiritual journey and use the term wilderness. I'm in the wilderness. Are you experiencing the wilderness right now in your life? Wouldn't surprise me with the COVID restrictions and the isolation and everything. No doubt many of us would say, wow, life has been a bit of a wilderness. Hasn't it felt like a bit of a desert. Mark mentions the wilderness four times in these opening verses and then never again. It's in the prologue 
for a reason. He wants to get our attention on this. Because the life and work of Jesus is the greatest act of God in history. And Mark wants us to recognize that when God is about to do something great, when God is about to roll out something big, when God is about to bring a fulfillment of some great promises, he prepares in the wilderness. It all starts in the wilderness. The wilderness is a place of preparation. And here we have Mark quoting from Isaiah, a voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight his paths. Here's Isaiah prophesying John, uh, Mark, quoting him, referring to John the Baptist. This is a text that has been drawn primarily from Isaiah chapter 40, the beginning of the sort of comfort chapters in the prophet Isaiah. And in Isaiah, it's like this, comfort Comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries, in the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. I don't know if you kind of picked up the little sort of change in grammar when we read this phrase in the, in the New Testament. So the one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way. When Isaiah lays it out, it's like one is crying, prepare in the wilderness. The emphasis is, is on the wilderness, whereas before it just kind of sounds like, oh, the guy crying out just happened to be in the wilderness, calling about preparing. But no, the emphasis really on the preparation is taking place in the wilderness. God uses the wilderness to prepare for great things. God meets his people in the wilderness. He uses the wilderness. Unique, special, important things take place in the wilderness. And this prefaces an outpouring of God's spirit and the fulfillment of great promises. The wilderness is where God prepares us for great change. Historically speaking, this time in history of what we're reading, New Testament times, was really a, a, a time of just all kinds of revolts and insurrections. Of course, we read history and we could take a 50 years or 100 years and read about a few different revolts and interactions that got kind of labeled the time. And really, there's nothing new under the sun. January 6th, revolt, insurrection. It was then the same as it is now. And there were lots of things. We've got the history. We've got the, the Maccabean Wars. We've got the Essenes that are referred to in the New Testament. Uh, these were insurrectionists. They, they would, and what they would do typically is they'd set up their militia camps out in the wilderness and they would go and prepare and say, we're going to go bring about good things. So we're going to go out in the wilderness. We're going to get our guns together. We're going to train. We're going to prepare. And then we're going to go in and we're going to take back our nation. At the time, the Romans were ruling over the Jews. And so they felt oppressed. And so the promises of God, as they read the promises of God, was that we need to be set free from these Romans. And so these groups would gather out in the wilderness and they would prepare to come back. Well, God had a revolt of his own that he was beginning to prepare for, quite unlike, quite different 
than the revolts of the ones that we read about throughout history. He had a very different plan in mind, but he too was going out in the wilderness and beginning to prayer to prepare for this great outpouring, for this revolt, if you will. He was going to go after the strong man. He was going to take down the real source of the evil. And he was going to deal a death blow to Satan himself. And he was going to bring about the kingdom of heaven, which didn't look like the Essenes thought it would look like. Which didn't look like these militia groups out in the wilderness thought it would look like. Nevertheless, God had a plan to fulfill his promises and bring about his kingdom. And it all began by being prepared in the wilderness. The wilderness is a unique place where devotion is established. Your personal life, your walk with the Lord, your trust in the Lord, these things take place in the wilderness. God relating to his people. Hosea chapter 2, verses 14 and 15, wonderful verses. Therefore, behold, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. And there I will give her her vineyards and make the valley of Achor a door of hope. And there she shall answer in the days of her youth. God drawing his people out into the wilderness. This is the time, this is the place where I'm going to speak tenderly to you. We are going to develop our relationship out in the wilderness. We are going to get to know each other in a unique way. And it takes the wilderness to accomplish this. Deuteronomy 131, the Lord reminds them of their time in the wilderness, saying, where you have seen how the Lord your God carried you as a man carries his son all the way that you went up until you came to this place. So when you know God in the wilderness, when you find out, oh, I went through the wilderness, but now I look back and I realize it was the Lord was carrying me like a father carries his son through those times in the wilderness, in those places where there seemed to be like no material possessions, opportunity. You didn't grow things in the wilderness. There was no supply of water. The bread had to come from heaven. The water had to come gushing out of the rock. You needed God to supply because the supply was not there in the wilderness. And yet God was there in the wilderness and God met the needs of his people. And there, not only did God reveal himself to his people, but there he would draw the hearts of the people to himself. Maybe you remember when we started off in the book of Jeremiah not too long ago, Jeremiah chapter 2, the Lord says, I remember the devotion of your youth, your love as a bride, how you followed me in the wilderness, in a land not so. This is where it begins. This is where it starts. God is about to do something unique and deep and powerful in his relationship with his people. And it's taking place in the wilderness. The wilderness was the place where the people get to truly know their God. Normal things of life are set aside. Normal distractions are set aside. There's nothing left except to say, where is God? I need God. God needs to supply this is all referring to Jesus being baptized and leading up to John the Baptist as the voice crying in the wilderness. And Jesus comes out to the wilderness, into the wilderness. He meets up with John and John baptizes him. Now, John's baptism was a baptism of repentance and for the forgiveness of sins. And of course, we have this obvious question. So why 
would Jesus need to be baptized? Whether we know there was no sin, there was no sin to repent of. There was no forgiveness needed for Jesus. And yet we know from, from Matthew's account, even when John was sort of giving a little bit of an argument, Jesus, something's wrong here. Me baptizing you, this does not feel right. You should be baptizing me. That makes better sense. Jesus says, oh, nevertheless, to fulfill all righteousness. John, this is important. We need to go through this step. This process is important. John, you need to baptize me. And John consents and agrees, and Jesus is baptized. You see, baptism was, in fact, a, a, a declaration of repentance, and it was, a, it was a washing for the forgiveness of sins, but there was another side to that coin as well. Baptism was also a declaration of surrender and a declaration to live a life of obedience to the Lord. When you and I get baptized, yes, it's a baptism unto repentance. We say we have repented of our sins and we're going to be immersed into this tub of water. And we're going to leave our old man and our sins behind us. We know that this is the work of Christ to forgive us of our sins. And we're also saying we're coming up out of this water to live a new life. This is a declaration. I belong to the Lord now. I am marking this moment. He's saved me. He's washed me clean. And I am his forever. So my old man, my, my own old desires, my old passions, I'm leaving them down under the water. And I'm coming up with a new confession. I'm his. My life is his. I live for him. My devotion is to him. My obedience is to him. That's the new life. And that's the aspect that Jesus wanted to make clear. And that's why Jesus followed through with being baptized, because here in the wilderness, Jesus is making this declaration to his Father. I am yours. I am devoted to you. I am here to do your will. I'm here to follow everything that you command. Your word is my life. So a lot of different commentators make different attempts to explain. Maybe this is Jesus identifying with sinners or just affirming John's ministry. There's a, a lot of different ways to see this. But what Mark is wanting to emphasize here is that this baptism in this time in the wilderness is the inauguration of Christ's ministry. That's where Mark wants to draw our attention. Events are happening here in the wilderness that mark the beginning of Jesus' ministry. He's going to get this prologue done, wrapped up, out of the way, saying so much is significant here, and he's going to be ready to launch into the life and work of Jesus. And, of course, we know the wilderness is also it's a place of testing. When you're in the wilderness, know this, you're being tested. Your faith, your hope in God, your confidence in God is being tested when you're in the wilderness, when your soul experiences wilderness-like atmosphere. Know what's happening. This is the test for you. God is asking, do you trust me? Do you know me? Will you depend upon me? Will you look to me? No food? No water, no supply. Will you trust me? Will you trust me to supply? Deuteronomy 8.2 You shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. And he humbled you and let you hunger 
and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. You see the connection there. When we run out of bread, not enough money in the bank, not enough supply, the job offer is delayed, the promotion was lost. There's just there's not enough bread. And it feels like, oh, we're in some kind of a wilderness. God, what are you doing? We need more bread. We need another car. We need to pay the rent. We need this. We need this. And God says, look, I'm withholding this for a time because I want to test what's in your heart. Do you know that I will supply? And what's the lesson that he wants every one of us to know? You don't live by bread alone. What you need is God's word in your life and in your soul. I know what you need. I know what you need to eat. I know what you need to drive. I know your transportation needs. I know your housing needs. I've got all that. What I want you to know is that you don't live life by those things alone. You need me. You need my words in your life. It's a place of testing. When we look at Israel's history, there was a whole generation that did not survive the wilderness. They didn't make it. They didn't trust. They didn't believe. And we have God's account of that. You know that not one of them entered into the rest. Not one of them. Every one of them, except two, Joshua and Caleb, that trusted the Lord. The rest, the entire generation, fell, died in the wilderness because they did not pass the test. They did not believe in their God. They did not trust him. But we read in Hebrews, while they died in the wilderness, but Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. So, the writer of Hebrews says, so take care, lest there be in any of us an evil, unbelieving heart, leading us to fall away from the living God. I have failed many a wilderness experiences in my life. The people of Israel, as a generation, failed their wilderness encounter. I want you to know, Jesus went into the wilderness and did not fail this test. He passed this test with flying colors. He went before us, and he met every temptation. He survived, and he trusted the Lord in the midst of that wilderness. Why? Because he was a faithful son in all of God's house. And where do you and I fit in? Oh, we are his house. We are his people. We're riding in on his coattails. We get his grade. We get his diploma. We get his passing in the wilderness gets attributed to us. He was the good son, the perfect son. We simply get to be his household. Mark draws our attention to the wilderness. Why? to leave us with a high view of Christ. See Christ go into the wilderness. See what he walked through. See what he endured. See how he passed the test. And elevate your view of Christ, who he is, and what he's done. Point number two, the Spirit. 
Mark draws attention to the Holy Spirit. The Spirit comes through as a central figure in Jesus being baptized. And the Spirit is a central figure in launching the ministry of Jesus. So if you want to know what God is up to, take note in the wilderness, because when you see the wilderness, God's preparing. The second thing you look for, if you want to know what God is up to, look where he's pouring out his spirit. That's where God is at work. Where God pours out his spirit, you know, there God is at work. Look there. Note it. Be drawn to that. John's message, he says, I baptize, but you need to know there's another, there's a greater one who comes after me. And while I baptize with water, I want you to know he will baptize with the Holy Spirit. John's baptism was with water. Jesus' baptism with the Spirit. In John chapter 3, Jesus in a discussion with Nicodemus, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Very possible a reference John's baptism and Jesus' baptism. Jesus, to fulfill righteousness, says, John, you need to baptize me. He goes through that process. But John refers back to Jesus. Jesus is the one that is going to baptize you in the Spirit. One of the grandest promises of God in all of the Bible is for him to pour out his Spirit on everyone. Joel chapter 2, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Every one of you gets the spirit. I'm going to pour it out, young and old, men and women, servant, it doesn't make any difference what station of life you're in. I'm going to pour out my spirit on everyone. When you read through the narrative of the Old Testament, you realize, boy, the the people of God are desperate for God to pour out his spirit on anybody. You're living at a good time in history if God happened to pour out a spirit on one person. If we had one good judge, one good king, if there was a prophet in the land, if there was just one person that God poured out his spirit upon, we're good. God's with us. God is active. God is happening. And here we have this grand promise. <laughs> I'm going to pour out my spirit on just one person. Oh, I'm going to pour out my spirit on every one of you. Can you imagine? No, you can't imagine. We can't comprehend this. The grandest promise God could make to each one of us. And here comes the spirit and descends upon Jesus when he comes up out of the baptismal water in the Jordan River. Each gospel writer writes this, and it's interesting to run a comparison and what each gospel writer attributes emphasis on and describes the event, and there's little variations. What we get from Mark, Mark seems to be driving this thing to, to sort of tune out everybody else. It's as if Jesus is being baptized and almost nobody else is around. Mark is, is singling out this, this enormous event that is taking place, getting almost all human agency sort of 
pushed to the side, tuned out a bit for this very dramatic spiritual encounter. And Mark alone uses this phrase, and the heavens were torn open. The other ones write about this. Yeah, the heavens opened up. A little bit of a casual word, but not Mark. Mark's too dramatic. He's too colorful of a writer, and he wants to emphasize something. He said, no, I want you to know what happened here. When Jesus comes out of the water, God like ripped open the skies, ripped open the heavens. It was torn apart. It was very dramatic. It's like, get your attention. This is like high action movie right here. The heavens. In this situation, we're not talking about the sky, like the sky split open. It's talking about the kingdom of heaven. This sort of other dimension. There is this dimension where God and the whole spirit world is there. Do you know that this, the presence of God, the presence of angels, demons, this whole spiritual dimension is all in place all around us. It, it's, the Bible uses terms that somehow gives you the impression, well, they're all up there, like beyond space somewhere, but it's not really what the Bible is teaching. It's like another dimension that is not accessible to our five senses, nevertheless is all present around us, that the Lord is here, present, but we cannot see him or taste him or smell him or, or touch him. Any physical attempt, it's hidden from us. It's it's the heavenlies. And here, when Jesus comes out of the water, this is what, what Mark is talking about. It says that the heavens were ripped open. The, the, the veil between these two dimensions split apart, and there was access between them for this marvelous Trinitarian event. Coming up out of the water, the perfectly devoted son committed to the father's will in every way. The voice of the father booming from who knows where. He hears it because the heavens were ripped open and the voice comes through affirming the identity and the favor of the son. And the spirit, the Holy Spirit descending like a dove upon the son. Entire Godhead there, present, all affirming, all inaugurating. Oh, the grandest promises of God are about to be fulfilled in Christ. I want to draw the whole world's attention. I want every reader from here forward to read this account and know that the entire Godhead shows up for this inauguration of Jesus' ministry. So that Jesus is the one that you and I look to for the Spirit. For he will baptize you in the Spirit. Jesus becomes the source for us to look to for the Spirit. Okay, You don't need to say, ah, check the Jesus box. Now let's move on to the Spirit. What's being communicated here is that we go to Christ for the Spirit. The Spirit is upon Christ, and Christ is the one who baptizes, who sends the Spirit, who brings us. So you, you, you need more of the Holy Spirit in your life. You do. Whether you agree with me or not, you do. <laughs> 
I do. We need to be filled afresh. We need the Spirit at work in our lives on a daily basis. We need to come constantly to be refilled and refreshed. And where do we find the Spirit? Mark is saying, you look to Christ because the Spirit descended upon him. And so as we study Christ and we look to Christ and we elevate our view of Christ, we're finding that as we grow in knowing Christ, he fills us with the Spirit. We have the worship team come on up. So in conclusion, folks, in one sense, just living in a fallen world, we're all living in a kind of wilderness, are we not? It's just like normal life has a kind of wilderness feel to it. We're constantly facing some kind of lack. And if you're not right now, check back with me in a week. Something will come up. You'll notice some kind of lack of provision, some kind of lack of supply, something that you need in your life. The world, fallen as it is, the world that we live in is in a sense has an aspect of wilderness about it. The Lord is wanting to show us things through this because our lives were not designed to live for the supply. I know we all need the supply. I know we have needs in our lives. You've got bills to pay. You've got responsibilities for. But the Lord brings an aspect of wilderness to teach us, oh, you don't live by those things alone. You live by my word. So if you're here and you're experiencing some lack, oh, we pray that God will provide for the lack. If the bill is unpaid, if the need is there and the body is sick, oh, we pray, Lord, come quickly, provide for this need. But folks, in the meantime, in the meantime, that little bit of wilderness is about something, preparing you for something to come, communicating something to you. Oh, yes, I know you need that, but you don't live by that. The life that I give you comes in and through my word. And we also live in this constant need of God's spirit. As Christians, we've all been given the Holy Spirit, and yet we live in this constant need of being filled, refilled, refreshed with God's Spirit. One of the worst mistakes a Christian can make is say, been there, done that, got it, all taken care of. Been filled with the Spirit, check the box, go on with life. This is a daily need. This is how the scriptures talk about being filled with the Spirit, like just a constant thing, like a constant faucet, constantly filling, as we are constantly leaking, as we're constantly spilling, as we're constantly forgetting, we need more of God's Spirit. And Mark chapter 1, verses 1 through 13, the prologue before the drama begins is Mark dramatically drawing our attention to Christ for these things. The gap between our claims of knowing Christ 
and some of the realities of how we live our lives, sometimes that gap is big, too big. And there might be many things to learn to close that gap, but the first thing, the starting point, the thing that is most important if we're going to begin to close those gaps is to come again to the beginning and look to Christ. Look to him for his supply. Know him better, man, as the spirit of Christmas to come said. Know him better. Have a higher view of Jesus. That's what we need. That will be the beginning of change transforms lives where when we claim to know Christ, it will be clear, evidenced, and expressed in the way we live. Let's stand together. Father, take this.